Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, actually, it's about ethics and documentary filmmaking. Uh, at least that's what some are saying uh, in response to the new documentary about Anthony Bourdain, Roadrunner, by director Morgan Neville. Uh, the film documents Anthony Bourdain's rise and fall from his best-selling book, Kitchen Confidential, to his TV shows that took him around the world and made him instantly recognizable on the streets of New York uh, to the last few years of his life when he uh, took up with Asia Argento uh, and championed the Me Too movement before killing himself in a French hotel. Um, uh, it's fine, the documentary, as far as these things go. It's a perfectly acceptable talking head documentary um, that I, I I found personally moving, but that's because it you know kind of gets into the sadness that uh, is left behind when somebody uh, uh, takes their own life. Um, uh, it is narrated, at least in part, by Anthony Bourdain himself. Uh, and that narration uh, is at least part of the controversy here. Um, a handful of lines in the movie were taken from his emails uh, and turned into actual narration via an AI program designed to mimic his voice. Think Siri, uh, but for Anthony Bourdain. Um, frankly, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yes, it's a little weird, uh, but it's not like they create a dialogue for him to, you know, quote unquote, read. It's stuff he wrote himself in his emails. Uh, it probably would have been better if Neville had just had the person who received the email read it, but whatever, I'm not too upset by this, uh, except in the sense, again, that I, I find it just a little bit weird. And a reminder that we're, once we're dead, the almighty algorithm uh, will be able to keep us alive forever if we've narrated enough books or done enough podcasts or been on enough TV shows. In other words, I'm going to live forever, baby. Uh, the more troubling thing here is the omission of Azir Argento's POV from the documentary. And it's more troubling because the film, which utilizes a lot of behind-the-scenes footage that the uh, filmmakers obviously got from Bourdain's crew members, on his various shows. Um, this, this film basically blames Argento for the spiral that culminated in Bourdain's death. Uh, she was a big part of his life. Bourdain uh, is portrayed throughout as kind of a, having an addictive personality. He was always looking for his new addiction. Um, he threw himself into her causes and into her. He was very into her, uh, very, very much a love-struck puppy type. Um, and then she left him and the stories of her exploits were in the tabloids and it kind of broke his heart. Uh, the director said, he didn't want to get lost in a narrative rabbit hole, telling Vulture, quote, uh, I just felt like if I crack that door open, I really better be damn sure it's what I want because it would have been painful for a lot of people, honestly, if I had interviewed her. So I just said, and believe me, we talked and talked about it, is this really what I want? End quote. And I emphasize the eyes there because it's, it's really pretty shocking stuff to me. This is vaguely outrageous, I think. Uh, sure, a documentary doesn't need to be objective. Fine. It's it's ultimately the director's call on what sort of story he wants to tell. But if you're going to tell a story like this, and, and if you're going to tell it in a way that more or less blames Asia Argento for killing Anthony Bourdain, you damn sure better talk to her about it. Uh, Alyssa, am I overreacting here, or, or is this justified? No, I don't think so. And part of what's interesting about this decision is that it tells this story about Bourdain and Argento's relationship and Bourdain's involvement in the Me Too movement, but doesn't address what could have been, even if, you know, Neville wanted to blame Argento for Bourdain's death, what could have been a fairly damning part of the story, which is that 
before he died, um, Bourdain was apparently involved in Argento's efforts to pay off her own Me Too accuser. She um, was accused of um, sort of taking advantage of a young man who she'd met as a kid when they were working on a movie together who was a minor at the time of their alleged contact. She paid him a large financial settlement. um, And the New York Times reporting on that case suggested that Bourdain had been involved in negotiating that settlement in some way. Um, it was, the time story was not particularly clear in the details. Uh, none of, they, the story broke about the settlement Argento had paid after Bourdain had died. Uh, no one in Bourdain's circle would talk about it, again, at the time. But it seems like a pretty messy, complicated part of the story. Um, and I am sympathetic to the fact that a close look at Bourdain, Argento, Me Too, and Bourdain Suicide could be a movie in and of itself. But if you're going to sort of conclude this movie by suggesting that relationship contributed to Bourdain's death, that seems like a pretty messy and relevant part of it. Um, and I mean, so- am I, do you think I'm exaggerating here when I suggest that the film more or less blames her for at least sending him into the the downward spiral that culminated in his suicide. I, I know in the film they they several times say, "Oh, you know, we're not blaming anyone," you know, but yeah. but I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to watch this and come out of it thinking anything other than like, Azio Argento. Uh, if not for her, Anthony Bourdain might still be alive. I don't. I mean, it's hard for me to say. Clearly, um, you know, Bourdain's marriage fell apart. Um, he because he got sort of swept up in the travel he was doing, he was not present for his daughter in a way that he clearly felt really conflicted about. And it certainly seems like the film is saying that Argento was part of this sort of vortex around his death. And I think, I mean, I think the case is pretty compelling that he kind of reshaped his personality um, in accordance with the relationship in a way that he had done a number of other times in his life. Um, So, you know, whether you want to say it's like in accordance with his dictions, but the movie portrays him kind of going through these phases, right? I mean, first he's the guy who writes Kitchen Confidential. Um, You know, he's he's running Les Um, Then he kind of reshapes himself again as the star of these documentaries a third time once he has the second marriage and this child, and then um, sort of a fourth time in this relationship. And it's hard for me to say. I feel like I feel held back from saying that the documentary blames Argento for his death. But certainly she was part of this final phase, um, his relationship with her, clearly the people around him felt was impacting a long-term working relationship that was more like a family. Um, And yeah, it's a void at the center of the documentary. It's especially a void because it opens up the possibility that Bourdain had kind of reshaped himself as an activist in a way that, you know, he was not necessarily living up to in private by helping his girlfriend pay off an accuser. Um, And so I think it it does create a lot of problems for a documentary that in some other ways I found really compelling. I would just 
note that I have seen it suggested um, either in reviews or by critics on Twitter that if the, maybe it's too strong a word to say that the movie blames Argento, but that it connects her role and, and her leaving with his slide into the depression that eventually killed him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I read those things before I saw it, and I was like, ah, this is probably a little bit overblown. This, but I I mean, I like again, I feel very comfortable suggesting that the documentary does not again does not come out and say like she did it, she's yeah. the reason. But like it absolutely, the way it's constructed and the way it it kind of connects those scenes absolutely implies that she is at the very least connected to connected to what happened in that French hotel room. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that part of what's actually quite affecting about the documentary, I mean, Bourdain did not leave an, a suicide note, um, which is something that clearly befuddles um, some of the people in his life who he had prolific correspondences with, who he, they see him as a storyteller. Um, and so they are trying to come up with explanations, and Argento is one of the explanations that some of them have sort of landed on, I think. Yeah. Is the, other, the, other, the other ethical question here, and I, I feel like this has been very under-discussed, is that we, we have lots of background, behind-the-scenes footage from uh, Bourdain's, you know, times making these shows and these documentaries, which can only really have come from the talking heads who are present yeah. on the show and who are kind of crafting their own narrative here uh, in terms of what happened in those those last couple of years. I mean, I, Ar Argento and Christopher Doyle, the prolific cinematographer who's worked with Juan Carwai and a bunch of other uh, folks, uh, are, are essentially presented as interlopers here. They come in and uh, disrupt his life, disrupt his working life, fire people in his, he gets, or, or I mean, he fires Bourdain, fi Bourdain fires people in his inner circle because they are conflicting with Argento and, and Doyle. Um, and again, I just think that I, I don't I don't think you can make a documentary like this, even if we grant, and we'll talk about this in a sec, even if you grant that a documentary is not necessarily a piece of journalism uh, and does not necessarily uh, come come up to that standard, even if you grant that, I don't think that you can look at this this movie and this documentary with the material that they use from the sources they got it from and not feel disappointed by the lack of Argento and the lack, frankly, of Christopher Doyle also. Uh, in this documentary. Right, Alyssa? Yeah, at the same time, I mean, I think one of the things that is both compelling and, you know, maybe sort of squeamy, squeamish, bleh, I don't know what the right word is, about this documentary is just how much unprocessed pain there is on display, right? Or, you know, this is, Bourdain hasn't been dead that long. And the people who loved him and worked with him for a long time are obviously at the time that they're being interviewed, still really, really deeply grieving. Um, and so while I, I see the point that you're making, it's it's hard for me to distinguish a lot of malicious intent in the film just because the people who are appearing on screen, who, you know, many of whom are Bourdain's collaborators, but many of whom are just artists who are his friends, musicians he liked to hang out with in Nashville, are still so clearly trying to process what happened and doing so from a very raw, unresolved place. 
Um, so it's hard for me so, to see it as vicious. Um, well, I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's know. malicious or vicious. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. Again, I. I <laughs> I, I mean blame here in in an almost clinical sense. I don't mean it as like you know they, they, anybody should be held legally accountable or anything like that. But I I I, I just I find it I, f- I find it weirdly almost uh, almost incurious. Like if I was a documentary filmmaker making this movie, I would want to talk to these people just to get their part of the story. So Sonny, I think there's two ways to two potential ways to understand the quotes that you read at the beginning, which some people have read, I think, understandably, to uh, as an admission that talking to Argento would have messed up the preferred narrative, right? Mm-hmm. That it would have complicated the story that he wanted to tell. But I think there's another potential way, and I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying you can read it another way, which is you can also imagine that he is suggesting in some sense that he's protecting her from pain and from outright blame. Because Mm -hmm. to interview her with the story that he was trying to tell and the story that he had been told by others, by the people who were the primary sources, he would have basically showed up and accused her of being, again, if not morally responsible, of being the agent that led him into the depression cycle that led to his suicide. And, and, I think it's at least possible to read those quotes. Again, I don't know exactly what he's trying to say, but it's possible that he just sort of didn't want to go down that road because that would have been in some ways even more painful and would have um, been more been more vicious. And he didn't and he sort of felt like this was the story he wanted to tell, but he wanted to tell it in a way that was not vicious if possible. And again, I don't know if that's actually what he's saying. I, but I think those quotes are somewhat ambiguous and they have been read one way when that's not the only potential way to read them. And it's also possible, and I say this having seen a bunch of um, Neville's other documentaries and like them, that the film's problem isn't sort of vindictiveness or laying blame, but that it's almost too sensitive, right? It doesn't want to, you know... He, um, you know, Neville and his crew interview Eric Repair, who found Bourdain's body, who was a close friend of his for a long time. And Repair just refuses to talk about that specific experience and sort of how he's processing that. And they don't push him, right? And that's a totally acceptable choice. But um, I think it's possible that Neville and his crew we're trying to be kind to and defer to a lot of people who were really grieving um, in a way that makes it not, the movie not as searching as it could have been, at, arguably as it should have been. But if you look at something like Won't You Be My Neighbor, his Mr. Rogers documentary, or 20 Feet from Stardom, his documentary about backup singers, they're sort of fundamentally nice documentaries in a way. Um and he, you know, this is thornier subject material in a lot of ways. Not that the treatment and marginalization of backup singers isn't important, but it's raw material, and it may have been hard to do a full switch in modes from that. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's that. This this was my other thought, frankly, is that it is a. Uh, it takes it takes a certain sort of person to ask that question, which gets us to the documentary versus journalism 
aspect of this. Yeah. I mean, if I if I was a if I was an editor reading a piece like this, I would say, did you call Asia Argento for comment? Yeah. I mean, that would be like my first question after reading it. And if the answer is no, uh, there had better be an extremely good reason why why not and why it, why why it wasn't going to happen. Because um, I would not have run I would not have run a piece uh, as a piece of journalism that is about the subject matter that did not talk to her. It wouldn't it just because it wouldn't be fair to her like as much as anything else. Yeah. But this is not the documentary is not journalism. Where do we draw the line between the two and what responsibility do we have as viewers and as critics to not conflate the two? Uh, Peter, what do you think? That's a good question. Um, and I I think in some ways the answer is that we should we should treat documentaries. Uh, even, we're not going to treat them like we're not going to treat them like journalism in the sense that we expect them to hold up to journalistic ethics standards, right? They're not going to all be Washington Post, New York Times, we, you know, New Yorker level um, uh, kind of here is what we guarantee that we do, which is we call all the people who are named in this who have any re relevance to the story, right? Um, uh, and we make sure that they know they, as best we can, that they know that they have an opportunity to comment. Um, and documentaries aren't necessarily going to do that. Uh, but one thing that we all have to do with journalism, um, even the best journalism, is we have to treat it critically, um, even skeptically. And I don't mean that in the sense of, I think these mainstream media journalists are lying to us. I don't mean that at all. I mean, every piece of journalism, and in particular, every feature piece of journalism, long narratives like these documentaries are, they are all a series of choices about what to include and what not to include, about what lines of inquiry to pursue and which ones not to pursue. Even if you, even if you have called or emailed all of the named people in your story, you have, in many cases... Um, chosen to only to ask them a certain set of questions, right? Now, some stories are the product of dozens of hours, free will and conversation, but that's very rare. And so there's always, there's always limits and there's always choices. And as readers and as viewers, you have to take this stuff understanding that this is not, and again, to be clear, this is not an indictment of journalism in any way. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. But there are there are limitations. You know, if you have four thousand words in a in a magazine feature well, then there might be two thousand words of stuff that you couldn't include just for space, and that you wanted to, um, and you just couldn't get it. You just couldn't fit it in, and you still wanted to tell the story anyway. Um, and so th these things are always the products of choices uh, about what to about what to, what questions to ask, about who to talk to. Um, and about how to shape and frame these stories. And viewers and readers need to understand that these that as a result, they need to be aware uh, to the extent they can of the context um, of the and of you know how those choices are are made and how they shape the story. Um, and I, I don't think that there's a there's necessarily a better answer than that. And in fact, I think it's good and productive that the post-movie conversation about Roadrunner has not just been about Anthony Bourdain and about his life, though there has been an awful lot about that, but about the particular methods about uh, that, that were used to produce this story, um, about the choices that were made and what they say, uh, what they reveal about the subject. Yeah. Alyssa, what do, you, what do you think of the split? I mean, I think that 
this is a situation where form is really important. And form is not necessarily something that's easy to talk about for a lay audience who doesn't spend a lot of time sort of immersed in these questions already. My colleague um, in the the Washington Post newsroom, Ann Hornaday, has a really good piece that puts the AI voice recreation um, Neville made for the documentary in the context of things like The Thin Blue Line uh, and other documentaries that have used, you know, recreations or other sort of novel techniques to tell their stories in documentary form. Um, You know, I don't know if you guys have seen The Act of Killing, Joshua Oppenheim's movie about um, the mass killings in in Indonesia. Uh, But that is a documentary that is searing and revealing and involves Oppenheim and his crew spending a lot of time with murderers reenacting their crimes in the style of their favorite Western movies. You know, it is... It is a fundamentally different form than prose and a more expansive and tricky one in certain ways. And, you know, what something like The Act of Killing reveals is not so much that the uh, sort of reenactments and recreations are meant to be an accurate representation of mass killings in Indonesia, but they are an illustration of a kind of impunity that people who murdered a lot of their fellow countrymen still feel to this day. And that's the thing that the technique conveys. And so it's useful, I think, to think of documentary as a form that is not simply dedicated to communicating facts, but that uses a wide range of techniques to try and get at truth, you know, with a lowercase and a capital T, Um, And that slipperiness is part of its power, but also part of what makes it tricky to parse and what spurs conversations like this one. Um, You know, I I think that's right, though. I would also say that that's not uh, that's not limited to the documentary form. And there are written products that are like that, too, particularly books, even books that we treat as essentially journalistic. It's not uncommon for memoirs that are ostensibly true stories to have um, composite characters and to have incidents that are sort of uh, all compacted, even if they didn't exactly happen that way in real life. And typically there's an admission of such, uh, right? And you, you get in trouble when you don't have the admission, but sometimes that admission is a little paragraph in the acknowledgments or near the acknowledgments at the end of the book that you kind of, it's not forefronted. Um, and so that's, it's a way of telling stories that is designed to to get at an emotional truth um, more than it is that at uh, you know specifics and details and facts in the way that that more conventional journalism that all of us are familiar with um, tries to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that Roadrunners uh, director Morgan Neville chose not to interview Asia Argento, Alyssa? It's a controversy. Peter. I think it's a controversy, but it's not necessarily. Again, I, I think I could go either way uh, it, it, uh, six months or a year or so. I don't think it's necessarily an illegitimate choice. Uh, I think it's a controversy, and I think it is an illegitimate choice. You uh, should, should have talked to her for the, for the, for the movie. You're going to make a movie like this. Um, All right. If you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about the looming threat of COVID hovering over the Tokyo Olympics. Will they go off or or not? 
What's what's going to happen there? Uh, let's we'll talk about that in the bonus episode. Uh, and now on to the main event, Loki, which just wrapped up its six episode first season on Disney Plus. Uh, I say first because despite some rumors to the contrary, there will definitely be a second season. A mid a mid credits teaser informed us uh, at the end of the finale that Loki will return in season two. Very James Bond like. Uh, there is not that's not really a spoiler. Uh, but this part of the show will be filled with spoilers. So if you, if you're a spoiler reverse, please skip uh, to the end. Go to go to the bonus episode or whatever uh, until you caught up on the show. Okay, uh, Loki of course features Tom Hiddleston as Loki, uh, but not quite the Loki we know from the Infinity War saga. Uh, the one who came around to uh, not quite good but uh, some sort of decency uh, before being killed by Thanos in Avengers Infinity War. Um, this is a variant Loki, a refugee from the sacred timeline, uh, and the all-powerful bureaucrats in the Time Variance Authority uh, are here to quote-unquote prune him from the timeline, that is to say kill him. Um, Loki is given a chance to save his life by Mobius, who is brought to charming life by Owen Wilson. Wilson is tracking another Loki variant who shockingly turns out to be a girl Loki named Sylvie. Uh, Loki Loki and Sylvie uh, go off to have adventures and travel to the end of time where they discover the guy who it seems is going to be set up to be the big bad in the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Kang the Conqueror. Uh, along the way, we meet all sorts of- But they don't call him Kang. They don't call him Kang. They don't call him Kang. He is, it's it's all very, it's hush-hush, hush, but it's, it's Kang the Conqueror. Uh, along the way, we meet all sorts of other Loki variants, including a charming Richard Grant variant. Hooray! Uh, the show is, to my mind, deeply uneven. Uh, I thought the first two episodes were great because they're basically setting up a buddy cop movie along the lines of A Lethal Weapon or 48 Hours with Hiddleston and Wilson. Um, the middle two episodes are kind of dreary because Wilson is largely removed from the action and also because the effect work uh, on the exploding planet that Loki and Sylvie find themselves on for, for two episodes is just really bad, like really bad CGI, backlit really poorly. It, it just looks cheap and uh, fake. And it, granted, it's always going to look kind of fake, but it doesn't have to look cheap. Um, and the final two episodes are pretty good uh, because they are incredibly weird, taking full advantage of the multiverse idea. It's the multiverse ideal to me that's both tricky and interesting. Uh, and I was not surprised to hear that the show uh, featured a pair of Rick and Morty veterans on the writing staff, including the showrunner, uh, formerly of Rick, or Mo Rick and Morty. Uh, Rick and Morty, for those of you who don't know, is Cartoon Network's adult-oriented animated show about a genius who takes his grandkids on adventures through the multiverse. Uh, most importantly, though, the show has helped solve a problem with all infinite timeline shows, namely uh, creating stakes and emotional resonance when anything can be undone at any moment by simply hopping into another timeline or going back into the past or whatever. Um, Peter, what did you make of Loki? Uh, and given the lackluster box office on Black Widow, including a pretty, pretty steep second weekend drop, uh, and the fact that the MCU has always felt more like a TV series than a film franchise anyway... Does it feel more and more like Disney Plus is the natural home for these types of adventures? Oh, yeah. I'm Kang Gang all the way. Kang Gang. Kang for mayor. It's going to be great. Um, so, uh, you know, you um, you said that there were going to be spoilers here in this segment, and I'm, I'm going to start with a big spoiler, and the spoiler is there's more. There's always more. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Loki is 
is at least one of my favorite MCU products. I think it just works um, at times on really, really well. I would I would single out episode five, um, where you have all of the the variant Lokis, including the alligator, or was it a crocodile? Who cares? Uh, the crazy bowling alley hideaway with the uh, video game that has never actually been released, but was definitely an FBI plot to monitor the hippies in Portland in 1980. Um, with Richard Grant and the giant smoke monster thing. And it's just super clever. And it takes its idea to the, to like, to the logical extension of the idea, right? It's, this is, this is high concept like squared. And, and the problem is that the finale, while it works on its own, and while Kang is a really interesting character, it's not actually a resolution to this story. It's not even, It's not even here's the next chapter in this story. This is a story that that resolves in the setup of another story or actually a whole lot of additional stories, all of which are sort of promising to be the thing that actually provides the resolution that you're looking for, but will not, in fact, provide it. What they will themselves provide is the setup for even more stories. And so, you know, again, as an episode of television. This is the MCU paradox. The MCU paradox. As an episode of television, the finale is is actually pretty good. Kang is a good character, um, interesting, fun to watch. Uh, But I just don't think it's a great capper to the previous five episodes. I do agree that Loki definitely makes a case. I don't want to say definitively demonstrates, but it makes a case that Marvel is just better off on TV. I wasn't nearly as bothered by episodes three and four as you were. Um, I thought some of that stuff was actually pretty fun. The bits on the train were, were were fairly amusing just because Tom Hiddleston is so enjoyable to watch. Yes, he's more enjoyable to watch if Owen Wilson is on screen. But Tom Hiddleston just loves spitting out dialogue and taking lines and twisting them and like exaggerating them. And just, he, he relishes it. And it is so enjoyable to watch him say words. And I'm just happy to do it all the time. And even if Lady Loki is not quite as, um, you know, it doesn't quite come across as uh, as as purely like pleasurable to watch on screen. She's also an interesting character. She's a good counterpoint to him. Um, and she is a, a good introduction, like a stealth introduction uh, into the MCU, the idea that we can start gender swapping these characters and that all of your heroes that you love, like they're not going to stay the same. And I think, and this is an idea from the comic books that I think sometimes is annoying, but is like, is actually a good idea at like essentially, um, even if it is sometimes deployed badly. Um, and and she's a well, good way a, to introduce a bunch of that stuff. It's a deeply cynical idea is what it is. It's, it's a way to keep telling the same stories over and over again by introducing the most literally just cosmetic changes and saying, oh, g- girl Thor now. We got girl Thor. That's a thing. Uh, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm very skeptical about this. Alyssa, what did you make of the series? It did nothing for me, <laughs> or at least it didn't. Oh, oh. it did nothing for me until Jonathan Majors shows up as he who remains. Uh, in part because I love Jonathan Majors, I think he's great, and I also think yeah. just he blows everyone else on camera out of the water in those scenes where he is, you know, sort of giving us his backstory and offering the characters choices. And like, he is the one actor in this who I want to see play a bunch of different versions of himself. And I think that this, that for me crystallized one of the significant problems with this series is that it 
despite having a whole bunch of Lokis show up at various points, it all is just sort of a visual trick. It doesn't end up saying anything fundamental about what it means to be a Loki or like what the, you know, what the thing is that the variants share in common that get at some essential essence of him despite Wait, wait, no, no, it, it totally does. It says that they all dress in green, right? There's literally a line in episode yes. five about one of the Lokis not being green. Yeah, it just, ugh. I, 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 I mean, I, I, I'll disagree with that slightly in a more serious way and say that it gets at the, the fundamental idea of Loki is an untrustworthiness. Nobody, even Loki cannot trust Loki is what it comes down to. Uh, and even if we watch, you know, Tom that, Hiddleston Loki says, come around. it's not ultimately something that it proves. Um, I mean, when, you know, he, venture, he and Sylvie venture into the void and meet all of the other Lokis, like classic Loki and kid Loki, proved to be like pretty reliable and useful to have around in the brief period that we see them. You have that sort of one silly scene where a bunch of people betray each other. But I just thought it was such a waste of a concept. Um, and look, I mean, I, in, in that sense, it has a, it shares a problem with Black Widow, which is that it doesn't really want its anti-hero hero to be truly bad or unlikable in some way. Yeah, and I just, this felt like such sad emo boy, like, I mean, this is a show that is premised on the idea that Tom Hiddleston is really charming, so they have to keep him around. And this is a guy who's murdered <laughs> thousands of people on multiple planets. And so they give him, like, some temporary sads about Asgard and a girl version of himself that he kind of digs. And we're expected to feel sorry for him and, you know, complete the transition to caring about him as a person without any real recompense and repentance. I just, I, I found it just really unsympathetic and boring. And I mean, look, I'm more than either of you. I am a, just a huge sucker for sort of mid-century modern aesthetic, for brutalism. And I thought the TVA was pretty boring, right? It's like, let's do everything in shades of brown and orange and, you know, throw in a bunch of vintage computer terminals and card catalogs and stuff. And it's supposed to be a whole vibe. I just, I was just, I did not watch a single episode of this without spending three quarters of it on my phone. I got to say, as a sad emo boy, I think this is a huge win for representation. I just, I feel very seen and it's all very validating. I'm, I'm glad for you. I, I'm glad you now have the personal experience of having yourself represented on screen and seeing how it's never happened before transformative and empowering that can be. Um, and so, you know, because that's all that matters and quality isn't important, I guess I have to champion Loki now, which basically means I'm just going to go step off into a void somewhere because this is this is the world you've made Alyssa. apparently it's not her fault this is what happens uh wait are I, you accusing her of being the the like the lady loki of the of something uh, here i don't like know i'm not 100% sure what are you i'm not 100% sure saying? how this i'm not a, i'm not 100% sure how this metaphor works but, frankly uh, which which way you're going with it this, this, which is part of the problem with all multiverse stuff true uh, but jonathan majors is great um i it, and i will say that as much as i'm sort of burned out on marvel and sick of the stakes and everything else and the promise of a phase two where Jonathan Majors just keeps popping up in different guises, different versions of the same character, 
like that's the most appealing phase two pitch Marvel has made to me yet yeah. because Jonathan Major technically is awesome. phase four. Phase whatever, yeah. phase. Whatever phase we're in. Phase five, what phase whatever, are we in which, now? Which stacked uh, universe are we in? Um, uh, I, again, I, 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 the thing I do find most interesting about it is the kind of Rick and morty of this. I don't know if you guys watch Rick and Morty at all, but like it, it, there, there's, a, there's a lot of it that is essentially parodying this exact sort of movie and TV show, the whole Marvel thing. So now like the parody of... Uh, uh, the Marvel Universe is being subsumed by the Marvel Universe. I almost kind of, I would like to watch this show with Dan Harmon, who's the guy who created it and uh, created Community, and just to see like his eye twitch while while the show is kind of like aping the, the Rick and Morty thing. I don't know. I mean, this is definitely a Rick and Morty sells out kind of scenario. On the other hand, it's also kind of great because they've incorporated a bunch of good ideas from Rick and Morty's uh, multiversal uh, storytelling. Um, and they incorporated it not just sort of by borrowing it, you know, and sort of trying to rip it off, but actually by hiring the people who had done it um, and bringing them to, on to do the, to come in and something. Rip it off. Well, to do something. Um, to do I mean, something. It's, to, and look, I mean, it's, look, it's this really is, well this, done. It's really well done. It's, it's the thing. I, that I actually is, like, that I is like the thing. it a lot. Is it, is it super well executed? And it's also historically, it's, this is how the Marvel Universe has always operated, and not, but not nearly at this level of execution. And so, you know, Kevin Feige, who is sort of the chieftain of the MCU, the head boss who sort of manages everything, has said... Feige um, the Conqueror. Yes, Feige the Conqueror, as well as some of the writers have all, have said, you know, we, we view these films as being in different genres, right? And, you know, the, they will always point to, uh, like, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, as being like a 70s spy thriller, um, you know, and stuff like that. And there is... That has always been a, a little bit of a stretch, but also true in some ways. Um, they are always sort of adapting their heroes to a, a form that pre-existed them and is in some ways, you know, known and successful. And this is a much more interesting form and a much more successful execution of that adaptation, uh, I think, than most of the Marvel products. Uh, so let's talk about let's talk about the business of Marvel for a second here because I, I do find this all very interesting uh, and and I'm the host so I get to pick what we talk about uh, the but w if you look at Black Widow Black Widow had a very large second weekend drop dropped 67 percent just like F9 uh, from from weekend to weekend uh, it's the second biggest MCU weekend to weekend drop of all time I think uh, from first to second weekend I think it's actually uh, the but I, first biggest MCU drop and like the second or third biggest Marvel drop. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's, but it's it's a it's a big one. It's a big one. Um, and uh, there there are there are a handful of different ways we can look at this. We could look at it. One, maybe maybe Black Widow just wasn't very good, and the word of mouth on it was not that great. Uh, and people were like, eh, "I'm not going to theaters to watch it." The second way to look at this is. Well, you know, what it, how mu what sort of impact did putting this on Disney Premier Access uh, have on the movie? And I, th I think you could make the argument that it's a pretty significant one. If you uh, you will notice that the uh, that Disney did not release any second weekend Premier Access numbers. They did not say how many people purchased it this weekend like they did uh, the the other day, um, which is which is interesting in and of itself. Uh, and and I guess the 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 other kind of angle here is that it's still not it, this this movie does not have Black Widow does not have a China release date, which means that it is kind of screwed uh, in China. The the movie's all over the torn sites already. It's, if people want to see it in China, they'll 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 have watched it by now. Um, 
I don't I I'm I I don't have a question here so much as I'm curious what your guys state of the the sense of the state of the business of of Marvel is because I I think it's I think that my takeaway from this is it was a terrible mistake to put this on Disney Premier Access. If they had not done that, it would have had a better first weekend and a lower second weekend drop. I'm not sure I agree with I'm that wrong. because F9 had the same second weekend drop and it was not F, F9 no but F9 F the 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 Fast and Furious movies always have drops about this size uh, and the the uh, uh, the other thing with F9 is that, well, whatever, the, the Fast and Furious movies always drop more significantly than the Marvel movies. The Marvel movies have historically held much better than those movies. I think so that, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily. I just think the, the lesson the is that even in our sort of, um, uh, this is the, the epilogue to the pandemic, maybe, um, at least we are sort of uh, through a bunch of the worst of it, hopefully, uh, is that hardcore fans come out, but uh, these big movies rely, especially in their later weekends, on non-hardcore fans who are just vaguely interested, maybe bored. And to some extent, you bring those folks in with quality. And Black Widow didn't have quality and also had um, availability on... Um, you know, at home uh, for people who just wanted to watch it that way. And the the big thing that is pretty clear here is that the shutdowns and, um, you know, understandable uh, fears of going out at times, um, you know, under the coronavirus have just wrecked theatrical exhibition. And I just cannot see it coming back to the way that it was even two summers ago, maybe ever. Alyssa, what do, what do I you I just don't know. Do I, I mean, I don't think the new normal is settled enough for me to draw conclusions about whether theatrical movie going will come back um, or about the state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not least because, as we all know, the sort of streaming ratings that we're getting from the services are cooked and weird um, and, you know, a sort of Nielsen-based approximations at best. And so I think to the extent that theatrical movie going bounces back, the Marvel, Marvel is about as well positioned as anyone else to do well, whatever well ends up being. And they've yeah. got three more movies coming out this year. Yeah. Um, there's uh, Shang-Chi and uh, The Eternals and then another Spider-Man film. And so there's... That's a Sony movie, not a Disney it is movie, a, which will be very interesting right. because it's not going to be... There's like, But it's I, I within mean, the Sony MCU. Makes, right, right. But unless I'm saying that unless Sony makes a deal with... Disney Plus, there's no way to do the premiere access thing. So that that will be another interesting data point, especially if as I I I would not be shocked to see the Eternals and Shang-Chi end up on Disney Premiere Access. Yeah, as I mean well. one question that I, I know have, what they've said. Yeah, they have they've but, not said that they are gonna go to um, premiere access, but one question I have is how much more Disney values those premiere access dollars, both because they build loyalty for Disney Plus subscribers, but also because they don't have to pay um, maybe any money, but certainly not as big a they, share of their dollars to it's the a, it's exhibitors. about fifteen percent, right. according to Anthony D'Alessandro at uh, Deadline. It's about fifteen okay. percent. So, that, so, so they get about their so percentage keep, of each one about, of those dollars is larger. They keep about 85% of premier access dollars and they keep about 65% of domestic box office dollars. So the, the gap's really not that big. I mean, it's 20% I mean, is 20%. Over but it's 30 not, or it's 50 million dollars, it's pretty big. I mean, I'm saying it's 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 definitely big, but you're also trading, you know, four tickets for the price of two, 
basically a family, you know, family of four instead of buying four tickets to go see uh, Disney's new Marvel movie and paying $60 at the local box office, they're paying $30 at home. So, I mean, I like, again, I, I really, this is, I, I I feel very strongly that this is trading uh, box office dollars for digital pennies, but we'll see. We shall see. Um, all right, uh, we're running along here, so cu- cutting it short. Uh, that is it. Uh, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Loki? Uh, Alyssa? Uh, thumbs down. Peter? Thumbs up. I think thumbs up, uh, even though, again, I, I did have some, I almost checked out in the, the middle of the show, but it came back strong. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode uh, on the upcoming COVID games in Tokyo. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at SunnyBunch. We'll give to you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 